Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness tracker that provides daily insight into your recovery, your strain, and your sleep. You might have seen it on the wrist of Rory as he won the Tour Championship or other tour players. I had to find out more, so I reached out, got my own band, talked to some of the folks at Whoop, and I was blown away. And then, lucky enough, they wanted to support and sponsor the podcast and let more folks know about it as well. Here are the three things you need to know. There's three metrics, strain, recovery, and sleep. Strain is for those that are looking to track more than just steps. Track how strenuous your day is from start to finish. And this is key, get insight into how much you exert yourself during training. The second one is recovery. That is so you can get daily insight into how ready your body is to perform by looking at some biometrics such as heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and sleep performance. And the last one is sleep. It's all about optimizing the way that you sleep by getting target sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and your performance goals. You can monitor your sleep stages, cycles, time in bed, actual sleep, sleep efficiency, and so much more. And, you know, the best players in the world are paying attention to this, as we found out from the Whoop CEO, Will Ahmed. You know, Justin Thomas was telling me how obsessed he is with sleep. This is a guy who will just get up in the middle of dinner to go to bed if he feels like he's not going to bed at the appropriate time because he knows that he has to get a certain number of hours of sleep in order to feel that recovered, in order to feel, you know, peak on the day of the tournament or, you know, even on the weekends, right? Uh, He was saying that he actually had a green recovery on the Sunday of leading the BMW tournament. I think that's pretty cool, right? You know, normally when you're leading the tournament, you're going to feel an additional level of stress. In his case, it was the opposite because he's figured out ways to to train his body and and to use Whoop. Definitely check this out and learn more about Whoop. It's W-H-O-O-P dot com. Use the code G-S-L for 15% off your membership. That is G-S-L. Definitely go check out Whoop dot com. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking to leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker. It is good to have you here today. And this interview, this conversation you're about to listen into is, has to be one of my favorites. So this past week, I was down at the Golf Top 100 Summit. The gist of that is uh, Golf.com awards their Top 100 list of instructors, and then they invite everybody down. They have some amazing speakers and whatnot. And this year, it was at Pinehurst. And so I was lucky enough to be asked to come along to kind of share some of that story with you, what was going on. You might have seen some of that on Instagram and, and Twitter. And along the way, recorded a bunch of conversations, which you'll hear on the podcast. Uh, today, I wanted to start with one that had some strong ties to Pinehurst, though, and that was Chuck Cook, one of the legendary instructors of the game. He's He's been at this for a long, long time, has so many good stories to tell. You know, he respects the tradition and the history and all that of instruction, but also is very forward thinking in how he looks at, at teaching. And I just enjoyed this conversation so much. Uh, we start off talking about Payne Stewart. Some of uh, their interactions around Pinehurst as Payne went on to win the U.S. Open there. Just really cool behind-the-scenes kind of insights. I, I just love this story. 
So make sure to stay tuned. Pinehurst is just an amazing spot. If you haven't been, you have to go. I was able to sneak out, played part of the back nine of the number two course, snuck out there with Scott Fawcett, Mark Brody, and Joe from from golf. And we just had a great time playing at sunset. The course is unbelievable. I couldn't imagine playing it when they have it amped up for the US Open with the greens even firmer and those all those areas around the greens shaved down. It would be ridiculous. Uh, and then one of the newer things there is the cradle, which is the par three course is just super cool. We went out there after the summit was over, played nine holes. There's nine of us. We were going around in a ninesome as you do. Uh, it's like 28 degrees. It's freezing, but we had a blast. It's just the coolest thing ever. It's, they have music coming through speakers throughout the par three course and um, just this amazing place just to hang out and like have a good time, which is what golf is all about. So I, if you can go there, I wouldn't, I couldn't recommend it enough. I will definitely be going back there at some point to, to enjoy the full golf experience. But this is a fun podcast. We're going to have a video review coming out on our YouTube really soon. So go subscribe on the YouTube channel, Golf Science Lab. Uh, you have a full recap of everything that's going, going on there. We are hacking away at that and getting that ready as I speak. So stay tuned. This interview is with Chuck Cook, legendary instructor of the game. If you don't know Chuck, he has coached players like Payne Stewart, Tom Kite, Corey Pavin, uh, and then you'll hear stories in this conversation about his time working with Keegan Bradley, Luke Donald, Jason Duffner, and others. He has a wealth of experience and has spent decades spending all of his time in this field and becoming really a master at it. So enjoy this. Let's get into the conversation. Last night, we're at the Top 100 Summit here at Pinehurst. Last night, you told this really cool story about you taught Payne when he won here in 99. I was just, it was, it was really interesting. You talked about he was struggling coming into that. And i just curious that story, if you could tell that. That's so cool. Yeah, it was interesting. Payne uh, and I were planning to meet at the Memphis tournament, which was a week prior. I was doing an outing up in Pennsylvania at Laurel Valley and Payne was playing the Memphis tournament and then I was going to come down and and watch him on Saturday and Sunday and then we were going to fly over to Pinehurst. Well anyway he misses a cut at Memphis so I said well still wait for me I'll fly in on Saturday and then we'll fly over to Pinehurst. And so we went over and I had done golf schools here and played Pinehurst number two a lot and so I knew that it was a chipping golf course in other words nobody was going to hit a lot of greens. And so you had to leave your ball in places where you could get up and down because you're going to miss greens no matter no matter how well you're hitting it. And so when what we decided to do was on Saturday and Sunday is just walk around the golf course with chipping clubs and a putter and just practice chipping and putting from different places. And, and as we were doing that, I was marking in his yardage book. I had a yardage book. He had one. His caddy had one. And I was marking in his yardage book places where he couldn't get up and down from. In other words, there are places that were really hard to get up and down from. And he said, what are you doing? And I told him, and uh, he said, well, mark it in red. And I said, no. I said, I don't want you being afraid of it when you look at it. I'm going to mark it in blue, but just be aware of it. And so we walked around the golf course there for two days, and we did that. And so we set up a strategy that unless he was hitting a wedge that he would aim for the middle of the non-blue area on his yardage book. And so a, for instance, was the eighth hole, which had been a converted par five, and behind the green and to the left uh, is dead. I mean, you can't get up and down. It's, it's a 30-yard pitch up a hill, the green running away from you, so there's not much chance. 
And uh, the aiming spot there is front right of the green. And so the first day the pin was back left and he aimed at the front right of the green and then pulled it and it ended up going a foot from the hole. So he makes birdie. If he'd been aiming at the pin and done that, he would have made six. So he picked up three shots right there. And throughout the whole week in the tournament, he only hit it in the blue area one time, and that was to the right of number two. And he was lucky to make bogey there. Uh, so he, his plan worked to perfection, and uh, he only hit 41 greens. So, and he was eighth, I think, in greens and hit that week at 41 greens. So, so we figured it out the right way that time. Does that kind of define a little bit of how you work with players to perform at their best because he missed the cut wasn't playing well necessarily and you worked on helping him find the best strategy to win here in this case the story was not about how you figured out something on the range to help him win that week it was about like you coached him to play his best golf right yeah i think i think that's uh Probably back then, uh, those of us that were golf instructors to tour players, that we did a lot more. We were their psychologists. We were their their uh, game managers. Uh, their a lot of times their fitness experts yeah. and so forth. And so we we had uh, we did a lot more then. And with Payne, Payne had a beautiful golf swing, as everyone knows. And and uh, one of the things because of his uh, ADD that he had is he had a hard time finding structure. And so anything that you could do to give him some structure, so how to practice, how to develop strategy for golf courses, stuff like that, was what he needed to be a complete player. And up to that time we had started working together, he'd only won one tournament, uh, even with all that talent. And after uh, he and I and Dick Coop a sports psychologist worked to, with him to, to give him some structure. Then he ended up winning 11 tournaments and three majors and having a Hall of Fame career. So it's kind of figuring out, like, I mean, how did you figure out that's what he needed? Like, you know, he had only won once. You saw a bunch of talent. I, I think that's the question that a lot of us have because you see so many players, which are their golf swings are great, right? Like they look like they should be playing great and they don't. <laughs> Well, you you know, you learn from experience with that. You know, like uh, the first time uh, he and I got together to work was in January of 1989. And he said, all right, let's come on out and and, uh, and watch me hit some. And so we went out and hit balls for about five minutes. He said, okay, let's go play. And I go, what? What do you, what do you mean, let's go play? Yeah, let's go play. And uh, so I found out that uh, his attention wasn't the kind of guy that was going to stand there and go over and over again unless you gave him a reason to and so he had to develop practice strategies for him to make him practice things so he was because of his add very hard and difficult shots uh he was very good at at those shots because they got his attention they helped him focus because they were difficult enough to to keep his attention but easy shots he wouldn't practice he wouldn't he was not very good at when he played and so we would do things like uh, a chip and run, simple chip and run from off the edge of the green. I would put a towel on the green. I'd say, okay, you got to land this ball on the towel and then let it run out to within a club length of the hole. And so that was a game, and you got to do it seven out of nine times before we have lunch type deal, you know. And so that got his attention and got his focus and made him practice the shots that he needed to, to improve. And then 
same thing with putting. We might have a three foot, four foot, five foot putt from north, south, east, west around the hole. And you got to make all 12 in a row without missing uh, before we can go have lunch or go play golf or do whatever. And so understanding that he needed some sort of structure, needed a box around him a little bit to keep him from going off on tangents and getting him focused when that was a hard thing for him uh, became real obvious real quick. What do you think was the biggest separator from him with the the one win to a bunch of wins what what was it as something with his skill something as technique like what was the difference maker no i think i like i said i think it's it's uh, that he developed structure nick coop gave him a very uh, regimented pre-shot routine uh there he had a signal where he'd hitch up his pants a lot of people remember that about pain how he used to hitch up his pants well that was intentional to get say okay this is what i want you to focus from now until you hit the shot <laughs> So it's his signal to do that. And so just things that that would allow him to use his talent. You know, there, there, you have two different types of personalities. You have the analytical types, and those people have a box. So they have a lot of structure, and so they're very consistent players and things, but they don't run the table very often. And then you have players like Payne who... He would get a feel going for a while and he would run the table, but then he wouldn't be very consistent. And so each of those players sort of needs the opposite. Uh, I work with Tom Kite too, and Tom Kite was a very analytical player. And the best term he had is after he had worked with a sports psychologist, Dr. Bob Rotella, who had freed him up to let himself go and shoot really low numbers. Uh, so it took the box away from him. Whereas with Payne, you had to put the box around him to contain him a little bit. And so that's that's sort of how you you know we you would look at it when you're working with different players. And that's the art of coaching is, and that's the hardest part is figuring out what a player needs. Yeah, right? absolutely. What tools have you developed? Do you think over the years that help you start working with a player and? kind of make the decision of where to start because I think that's one of the toughest things. Yeah, I, I think that comes with experience. You know, I've made plenty of mistakes early on trying to teach too many things or trying to teach the wrong things or not having confidence that I was teaching the right thing. So I would switch into teaching it the wrong way. Uh, and I think you learn that through experience. I had a lot, lot long time teaching now. And so uh, a lot of the things that I do are you know, based on experience and, you know, to look, I mean, if I see a, if I see a golf swing, I know really within a few swings, what the limitations of that swing is going to be. You know, if somebody's too inside out, I know they're going to be hit thin shots and hit fat shots and going to hit blocks and going to hit hooks. And conversely, if somebody's over the top, I know they're going to hit pulls and hit slices and stuff like that. So it's, it's a pretty easy, after you've done it for a while, it's pretty easy to look at look at it and understand what's going to happen. And you can see that, too, looking at, at players. Uh, you can say, okay, well, here's somebody with a real strong grip. I work with Andrew Landry. And so Andrew Landry has a very strong grip with both hands. And so anytime you have a real strong grip, your short game is compromised a little bit because you, it's harder to hit high soft shots around the green and bunkers and stuff like that. So learning 
understanding that gave me a place to go with Andrew, good, very good ball striker, very consistent driver of the ball, really good, but very weak in the short game he was. And uh, so starting there with him allowed allowed him to win tournaments on the PGA Tour and become exempt for three years and all that sort of stuff. Did you weaken his grip then, the short no, game? Well, and... in effect I did, but not not that you would notice it by looking at it. And so with his right hand under, like that V on your right hand was pointed, you know, his right hip. And so what I did is I just opened the club face until it matched that grip. And so he, the club face on the ground looked wide open, yeah. but it really was just square to his hand. And so for him to get it open, he had to really lay the face almost looking at the sky with, uh, on a wedge shot in order to do it. But once he got used to looking at that, then his wedge game got a lot better. What I think is really cool about all the stories you've told so far is understanding the player and then working around them, not trying to get a player to fit into your particular model or anything, right? Like you're talking about working with players and finding what works for them, which is, uh, and you've been doing it for a long time. However, when most people think golf instruction, that's not what they think, right? Right. And, uh, and I, like I said, is I think that it's, that that comes with experience, you know, that you, when you, when you've uh, done it a long time, like a lot of the things that I teach, you probably wouldn't hear other teachers, younger teachers teach because they haven't seen it enough, you know, to, to know why this player can hit it long and straight but can't control their distance. You know, that's, if they're hitting it long and straight, most teachers are pretty happy. Yeah. But knowing that in the end they're going to have to learn to control their distance better and you know, just things like that, you know, learning what, what are uh, absolute things that have to happen around the green in order to be successful and so forth. So, yeah, I think that's the, that's the ticket. What's an example of when you did decide to make a large change with somebody in their golf swing, for instance, like what led you to, is there any players that popped to mind and like what led you to that decision? Yeah, I, I think the only reason that you change a good player's swing is if what they're doing will not allow them to reach their goals. In other words, if, if they hit it good enough, long enough, straight enough, the right distance often enough, to reach their goals, there's no reason to change it, not for style sake or, you know, to make them look more conventional or whatever. And so, uh, you know, that's the first. So that, does that mean you're a big data person? Like you're diving into data to find out? Yeah. I mean, like if you're, if you're working on with the launch monitor, like TrackMan or FlightScope or, or any of those, what happens is it gives you the direction you need to go. So if, if somebody is six degrees inside out, you know, we've got to get that fixed. And as a teacher, you've got to have different ways of doing that. Uh, you have to have an understanding. Is that setup related? Is it backswing related? Is it downswing related? And it gives you a place to go. And uh, and that happens with all of them. You know, if you're launching too high, you have to have stuff that will help launch it lower. If you're launching too low, you have to have things that will help launch it higher. And the the guy, the teacher that has the biggest inventory of those things uh, is going to hit more people. So I think that's an important, important factor. What would be one of your students who, who came to you and they and they weren't able, you know, what they had wasn't going to be able to reach their goals. Any, anyone? Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I had a uh, high, high school player, a young guy named Thomas Bockholt. 
And Thomas was a very talented kid. He's tall and everything like that, but he didn't have a lot of club head speed and, you know, hit the ball mega high, which doesn't work in Texas very well. <laughs> and not. so we started working and we developed uh, some things in his swing for uh, could maintain his wrist angle longer, get a little more shaft lean, hit down on the ball, take a divot, which also increased his speed exponentially. And uh, so he ended up being a the Texas 6A high school champion, a uh, really good player with 115 to 120 mile an hour club head speed with the driver. And, you know, really... There's a guy right there that it was obvious what he needed. He was tall, released club early, hit the ball high, couldn't hit it very far to somebody that became just the opposite. And he was a good he was a good player coming in. He was a good player, but not a great player. In fact, he uh, he <laughs> nobody had recruited him when I started working with him. He was a junior in high school, and nobody had recruited him, and so he was nervous. And so the first school to recruit him. He, he he took just so he could have one, and it, and it wasn't a big golf uh, factory. And so then he developed into this great player, to, you know, yeah. where he's, he, he was the Texas Legends Tour Player of the Year. He'd won all these tournaments his senior year, and he, you know, he uh, was a phenomenal, became a phenomenal player. And he wanted to change. He, and I said, no, you've got, you've committed to these people keep your word and if it, after a year you want to move then that that would be fine but so anyway he's uh he's in college now and and uh, got himself a full ride so there's an example of like the specific technique change helped him reach his goals we talked about pain earlier like maybe an environment change or like this structure change helped him reach his goals like two totally different actions that led to the goal that they were looking for yeah 100 percent. and and that's the thing is that you've got to recognize what it is they need the most i had i worked with luke donnell for a year and luke's weakness was driving the ball and he could he was number had been number one player in the year three years earlier and anyway he always had trouble driving the ball and uh, but he's the best short game player in the world he could hit good irons and so forth and so with him, it was obvious what he needed. And then when he and I worked, he, he improved his driving, but he felt like spending so much time working on his swing to be a better driver, his, he uh, had lost some of his short game, yeah. and he didn't want to do that. And so anyway, did there's a situation where it didn't work out the way I wanted, even though it was obvious what he needed to do, and he did get better at at that one thing, but it didn't didn't produce the outcome we thought. So uh, where he was going to win major tournaments, that's why he came to see me. And so uh, I worked with Keegan Bradley, same thing. Uh, Keegan's phenomenal ball striker, probably best on tour year in and year out. And uh, but it was a terrible wedge player and had a bad short game. So we worked on that, improved that a lot. And he had some close finishes, but he still. He still didn't win tournaments like he thought, and so we were. That was a one-year deal. You know, either I I was picking the wrong thing to work on, or it, it still wasn't enough to get him to reach their goals. And so that's what it's all about: is that you're trying to help people reach their goals. Reflecting back, is there anything that you do differently in that scenario, or like structure the way that practice is going differently, or just like 
I can't, you know, I, I, I've, I've racked my brain about yeah. it and, and thought about it. Maybe, maybe with, um, as you know, like with Keegan, what I found out was even though he became a better wedge player, a better short game player, his strategy was never aggressive enough to be able to use it. And so now he, he can control his spin with the distance wedge, flight, flight the ball with his wedges and stuff like that to allow him to control his distance better. But he was still ain't 20 feet left or still ain't 20 feet right, you know, in order. To, so he wasn't capitalizing on the, the game. His short game got better. He got to 12th on tour, strokes gain, chipping. But that wasn't enough for him to... You know, he finished fourth at Pinehurst when Keimer won. That was a, he played well there. And then with Luke, you know, I, you know, the only thing I can think of is that just go slower and try to do it a little more gradual and not try to do, uh, make quite such a big change that required a lot of practice. And I, that was probably my fault. Where do you think most people go wrong when they're going down this path of, you know, trying to get to the next goal, breaking through a plateau, they've been stuck at some level. And they just can't seem to get past that. You know, it, they're competitive. They're trying to compete and they a better player. Like, where do you see most players go wrong or why do they stay at that same level? Well, it, you know, if they if they've either identified incorrectly what they need to to improve the most or they're not committed to doing that. In other words, they're afraid to give up what they have in order to get something greater, which is a big, huge decision that. Uh, you know, when you're talking about top players in the world. And so that basically that's what you see. I would say probably if I was looking at uh, all of the tour players over the time and you'd guess how many, how many would have, would have done better with no instruction, how many got worse with instruction and how many got better with instruction, I think you'd find it would probably be about 50% would improve with instruction. You'd have 25% get worse, and probably 25% would have played about the same uh, without instruction. It's just a guess, and so it's uh, it's you have to be very careful when you're when you're making a decision, because at the level where they are, they're obviously very good already, and so it's you know it's my job not to make anybody worse. You know, first and foremost, you know, do no harm as the physicians creed. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I think that's the that's what I see is that it's either, you know, picking the wrong thing, making the wrong decision on what they need to improve or how to improve it or not being committed to the right thing. Those are just so key. It, it's crazy how many people don't commit to the plan and they end up chasing themselves in circles by just doing a different thing every year. You know, they they try it. It doesn't work quickly enough and then it's it's off to the next thing right and so they just end up going in circles no question i mean it's and you know i've been lucky i think most of the time with my reputation i get more people committed right than most people you know because they're i'm committed to them they know that they're trusting and that they're trusting you make the right yeah, decision he's helped these guys so he, you know i'm going to trust that he's going to help me do the right thing yeah but i think when i was uh you know, younger teacher, I, you know, I had the same, I had to, they had to hit it better. They had to see results pretty quickly or they weren't, they were going to switch. They were going to change. And so that leads you to get better every time. You know, you have, 
I've always operated under the premise that if the student hadn't learned, the teacher hadn't taught. And so I take 100% blame on their failure. I don't put anything on them. I don't make them, if they don't practice, it's my fault for not motivating them to practice the right way. Or if they don't get committed to it, I haven't sold it well enough, hmm. you know. And I know that that's not 100% accurate, but I think it's important for me to think that way, to think that it's my fault if it, if it doesn't work out. So you've been doing this a long time, um, but you stay on the cutting edge, I know. Like if, if watch a bunch of your presentations and you're always it seems like experimenting and trying and learning new different things which is amazing what is interesting to you right now like what are you most interested in well you know that my generation is the one that sort of pioneered the technology that their people are using today we started using it first yeah like i was the first guy to use a launch monitor to teach uh we had, I had a... What did that look like, the first it launch? It was a, an Achiever. It was called Achiever. And it was a laser grid that you'd hit a ball through, and everything was done through algorithms. You know, as this ball gets hit through this laser shield. And uh, it, was, it wasn't bad. And it was originally sold for club fitting. And so when we started using it, I, I said, well... Oh, let me put some guy on here. Let me see see what he's doing, and you know we'll use it for teaching. And uh, so, but we didn't know what it, the numbers were supposed to be. We had no clue. You know, I said, "Well, Tom Kite launches a six iron about sixteen degrees, so sixteen must be pretty good." You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we sort of you know found our way with that, and that's that was one of the ways we started. And then in, in 1980, I had a golf academy where I had I had a biomechanical engineer. I had a I had Dick Coop, uh, educational psychologist. I had Al Vermeil, who was the strength coach, doing our fitness, and had Dave Pels doing our short game. And so that was a huge growth period for me. And uh, I mean, it was just the advent of trying to be holistic in golf instruction. It's amazing how forward thinking that was, because I feel like just over the past couple of years, this team concept is becoming very normal and expected right yeah and that's and, it's and, incredible and of course everything improved from that you know the launch monitors went to uh the vector was next and then after that you know then finally trackman and flight scope flight scope was before trackman then trackman and you know now they the g quad and all that sort of stuff and so it's they've gotten better and better and better and because of that because it's better and better, more teachers invested in it and are using it. And consequently, a lot of the, a lot of the golf instruction has gotten much, much, much better because now we sort of understand these things. Like for instance, I had, I talked to Ben Hogan one time, he was practicing. I got the chance to watch him practice for two days. And one of the things he talked about was controlling your trajectory. And I'd talked to Claude Harmon at uh, at Seminole, and he said Hogan believed that every ball should go the same height. And so no matter what club you're using. So he'd start, and he had a tree at Seminole that he thought was the right height. And so he would he would start with a pitching wedge, make the ball peak at that tree, and then move back 10 yards, make the 9-iron peak at the top of that tree, and then move back 10 yards, make the 8-iron peak at the top of that tree. And so then we find out once we get track men, well, the tour players average 30 yards with every club at, at height. 
And a lot of things have been confirmed. Like Bob Toski told me, you know, players that have more lag have to swing more left. He told me that in 1979, hmm. relating to Hogan primarily. And then you find out with TrackMan that if you have a downward angle of attack, you've got to get your swing direction to the left in order to make the path zero. So what happened is, is that technology has confirmed a lot of what the successful teachers did or do. You know, I haven't really changed what I teach uh, very specifically, maybe some different emphases, probably since the mid-90s, but technology has confirmed it, and which would make sense because I've had success, so yeah. you'd think I'd be doing something right. And that's what you talked about yesterday was your, you gave a talk on indefensive golf machine. That, that, was, that was the title, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And kind of talking about the confirmations kind of around that as well. Exactly. You know, and it's, it's uh, the golfing machine was an early book on, written by an engineer. And so it was, it was, it was really interesting to me to learn uh, some of those principles, those engineering principles that, that really helped me develop my teaching philosophy. And, and it, uh, like I said, it, then when it was confirmed through technology, uh, then I was, I was gratified. I sent us down a tangent there. I apologize. What are you most interested in right now? Like, oh, you know sorry. what? No, 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 that's my bad. What, what is most interesting to you? Like, what are you looking into? Like that kind of stuff? You know, there, I, I always follow what's, what's out there. You know, uh, the uh, biomechanists now are having a nice alpha war uh, where they're fighting each other. And it's fun to watch uh, that. I, I have a hard time with the terminology that they're using, but I think a lot of good is going to come out of that when they're able to go through and actually measure how a person changes what the club is doing. You know, what are they really doing? Are they pulling on this and pushing on that or, you know, are they twisting this or twisting that? Uh, a lot of things we know. We know what happens. But I, I, I think there's going to be, I think some real good is going to come out of that. So I'm real interested in following that and see where that goes. You're already seeing some things, some of the better teachers, Jeff Smith, Joe Mayo, Chris Como, uh, Dana Dahlquist, a lot of guys, Brian Manzella, a lot of guys have used some of this new information to help make their players better. And so you're uh, Gigi, uh, George Gankus, we got to see yesterday it was really interesting and, and you can see why they're doing what they're doing now. And I think a lot of that is, is based on this new research from that the biomechanists have passed along not new probably, uh, to them, but new to us. And so I'm interested in that. I, I think the next frontier is going to be a little bit more on the mental side. I think, um, I think we're starting to see it already. You're, you're seeing players start to string together good rounds used to be if you had a good round, you had an average round the next day, you know, almost always. And now people are able to stay in the moment a lot more to where scores now are just stupid good on tour. I mean, you can't, you can't stop these guys right now. There's no, you can't make a course too long with the rough too high, or the greens too hard or too fast. I mean, Pebble Beach was that way. They shot 16 under. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. And so I think, you're, I, I think there's, a lot of lot going on in that field uh, to where players are able to to maintain the correct mental state uh, the correct mindset for tournament after tournament 
I mean, you're seeing guys set records on how many times they go shooting in the 60s, you know, Victor Hovland. Yeah. How many times guys are going without a three-putt, you know, which takes a strong mindset. Do you have any insights on on why that is or what's going on? I just think that it has to do with the team concept, Hmm. you know, that guys are are dealing with um, uh, performance coaches a lot as well as as, uh, psychologists. And so forth, and I think that they're because of that. You're having more and more players have the right mindset. Like Tiger, sort of grew up with his Buddhist background, meditating a lot growing up, and so he he grew up being able to focus better than anyone else and and having the right mindset for a long period of time. But I think other players are starting to develop that skill as well. Amazing. Chuck, this has been really good. Your stories are the best and your experience is just incredible to be able to to listen to some of that for a while. So thank you so much for sitting down. I appreciate it so much. If folks want to ask you a question or interact, what's the best way for, for people to do that? Uh... <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. Yeah. I, I don't uh, I, I don't have a website or any of that. I'm on Facebook. Perfect. So if they want to get me on Facebook, they can get me on Facebook. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> but uh, no, somebody asked me, said, why is your website so bad? I said, because I don't want any new customers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if, if you can function and you thrive off only referrals, that means that you are doing something incredibly oh, yeah. right. Yeah, I'm a happy guy right now. That's amazing. Thanks, man. You bet. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Huge thanks, Chuck, for taking the time to sit down with me and share so many stories. It's just amazing to get these insights as golfers and folks that are trying to perform at their best. This kind of conversation, this kind of information is so useful. Another huge thank you to the golf.com crew that brought me down to Pinehurst for the Top 100 Summit. It was phenomenal to work with you all. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and Apple Podcasts or Spotify, any of those places. Stay tuned. We have episodes coming at you weekly and so much more over on the YouTube channel and website, golfsciencelab.com. This episode was hosted by me, Cordy Walker. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions.